Amen. Let's remain standing for the reading of God's Word this morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you has, who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give you anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. For what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Amen. Let's be seated together. Let's pray as we start this morning. Father, we pray this morning because most fundamentally we want more of you. And that's why we come to worship with your people because we've tasted of you and we know that you're good and even the distractions of life, the disappointments of life, we still come back because there is none like you in all the earth. There is no other God who speaks. There is no other God who saves. There is no other God who would pursue sinners like us. And that's why we come to you. We want to hear from you. So speak, Holy Spirit. We ask this of you. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may have heard of the uh, pastor-author named Eugene Peterson. He was a Presbyterian pastor for a number of decades. He's passed away now. He was also a well-known author, which is why most of, know, most of us know him, and he actually translated uh, what is known as the Message Translation of the Bible, which is probably how he's most well-known. But in one of his books uh, called The Contemplative Pastor, he talked about the first few years in his pastoral ministry when he came out of um, seminary. It was, was technically a graduate school, but um, yeah, came out of seminary. And as he came out of seminary, he was, um, you know, he's a very intellectual, academic person, 
And so he was excited about all the facts and insights and, and all that he had learned in seminary. He was excited to be able to, to, you know, the things that make our faith come alive, that give richness to the Christian faith. And he was excited to be able to teach this to a congregation. And he realized in hindsight, um, this is how he describes him coming in those first few years of ministry. He said, I, I'd come into the parish, that's how he's talking about the church, I'd come into the parish seeking its great potential as a learning center, a kind of mini-university in which I was the resident professor. Now, I have to say that um, <laughs> for members who've been here a while, you've probably seen a certain number of seminary students and seminary graduates who, um, you know, express similar kind of zeal for education, uh, maybe a little bit extra at times. Uh, of course, I would take that over kind of an anti-intellectualism any day, but nonetheless, what Eugene Peterson found out is as he, you know, a couple years into his ministry, his, his adult education programs are, are going well, people are learning, but he's beginning to realize that there's a hunger in, in his people that's pointing to something else beyond just more adult education. And when he realized that what his church needed more than anything else was to learn how to pray. And this is one of the reasons why I read Eugene Peterson, because he has these spiritual insights that line up with scripture, but that are insights that I might not see on my own. He just sees things very perceptively. And that's what we see here in our text this morning. In my understanding, my knowledge, this is the only time that we have the disciples just explicitly asking Jesus to teach them something. Say, teach us how to pray. You gotta think Jesus was the master teacher. I mean, he could hold multitudes spellbound. He could preach in a way that would cut to the heart. They didn't ask him to teach them how to teach or preach, they asked him, teach us how to pray. And what we find is that's because prayer is one of the basic functions of Christian discipleship. We are in the fourth of our kind of short mini, or fourth part of the short mini-series of, of the uh, characteristics of authentic discipleship. And if you remember, the first one was a, a committed and costly discipleship. The second characteristic was love of neighbor. The third was a a devotion to Jesus in the midst of a busy world. And then finally, the fourth characteristic of authentic discipleship is a life of prayer. To give you a roadmap of where we're going this morning, we're going to have three points. The first is going to be looking at the content of prayer as Jesus gives it to us. The second will be the attitude of prayer. And the third, the goal of prayer. So looking at the content of prayer, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them and look at the first four verses with me. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. So again, our story begins with a request. The disciples come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. One of the interesting things about the Gospel of Luke is that Luke has a big emphasis on Jesus' personal prayer life. Multiple places, he details that Jesus would leave his place of ministry, go into a desolate place, and just spend crazy amounts of time in prayer, praying all night. I'm curious, uh, I'm going to do a, another quick poll. Has anyone here ever spent an entire night praying? Let me qualify that. I'm not talking about an all-night worship service. I'm not talking about a youth group lockout. I mean, you and maybe a couple other people got on your knees at 8 p.m. and then got up at 5 a.m. Got off your knees. Has anyone prayed the entire night through? 
Okay, I have not either. (laughs) I think when we think about that, we think, you know, I could probably swing the first hour or two and be okay. But after a while, it's like, what am I going to do? Like, am I just going to read the encyclopedia out loud? Like, what do you, how do you pray that long? And the disciples, they've been seeing Jesus pray like this throughout his whole public ministry. So they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, I don't know how you're doing it, but teach us to pray like you do. And this is an encouraging, I think, fact for us who probably most of us struggle to pray, is that the disciples themselves, who became the 12 apostles, they also struggled to know how to pray. So they come to Jesus and they ask him to teach them. That's an encouraging word, I think, for us. And the way Jesus begins, he gives them what should be the content of their prayer. And the content of their prayer doesn't give them specifics of this is what you should pray in terms of, like, repeat these words, but he gives them a model for prayer. Gives them a pattern, a guide. Pray them like this. In fact, in Matthew, that's exactly what it says. Instead of Jesus saying, pray, pray, say this, in Matthew, he says, pray then like this. Gives us a model. There's something I want to point out before we actually get into to what's contained in this model and the content of prayer. Is that in this prayer, there is no first-person pronouns. There is no I, me, my, mine. Look at it. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. I think when we think of prayer in the Christian life, we typically think of, you know, you in your home by yourself, maybe with your spouse or family, but praying by yourself. That's how we think of prayer within the Christian life. But when Jesus is outlining the basic functions of discipleship, discipleship 101, he does not mention personal individual prayer. He mentions prayer as a church. This is God's people coming together. This is not extracurricular. This is basic to being a Christian, gathering with other Christians in times of prayer. And so as we read this, this certainly applies to individual prayer life, absolutely. But Jesus is primarily talking about when the church gathers to pray. Now, we haven't been able to do our prayer meetings because of COVID. We're going to be starting those back up in probably a month or two. And what's standard for churches across the country, in America anyways, I don't know about other countries, is typically you'll get about 20% of the people who come Sunday morning will come to a prayer meeting. And there's all kinds of reasons why that might be. And we're a little bit better. We're probably at 30%. But again, if Jesus is giving Discipleship 101, includes praying together with other Christians, I think we're just missing something big when we're not making a priority to be at prayer meetings. So that's my little plug. When we start up prayer meetings again in, in a month or two, make these a priority because they are to Jesus. He considered them a priority for us. So when we're looking at this model, this pattern for prayer that Jesus gives to the church, I have four important observations I want to point out for us from this model. This is telling us what should be the content when we come together to pray as a church, as well as when we pray individually on our own. And the first, the first observation is that prayer should begin with God and his kingdom. Look at verse 2. And he said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. He begins with, who is God? He's acknowledging who God is. God is our Father, but he's also a king. God is our glorious Father. This is, hallowed be your name, worship of God. May your name be set apart. May people know how great you are. 
Now here's the thing, it's, it's important that he has two descriptions of God there, that God is Father and glorious. If God was only glorious, if he was just the divine, sovereign ruler of, of the creation, but not our Father, then we probably wouldn't come to him. I don't write letters to the President of the United States. He hasn't got time for me. But because God is Father, we can approach. Even though he's the sovereign ruler, he's also our compassionate Father. And so we can bring all the needs of our hearts before him. On the flip side, if God was only a father, then we'd come to him when we needed comfort, but he would never set our hearts on fire. So we approach a God who is both a father, but also a king. We begin our prayers with God, but not just God. We begin, begin our prayers with God and his kingdom. He says, God, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Now, when we talk about God's kingdom, we can talk about it in two different ways. One is more generically in terms of God is the sovereign ruler over everything. And so in that sense, the kingdom of God is everything. God is, there, this is kind of where Abraham Kuyper gets at when he says, there is no square inch of all of the created order over which Jesus, who is king, does not say mine. Jesus is king everywhere. But there's a second way we can refer to the kingdom of God, which is not just the generic created order, but wherever Jesus is worshipped as king. Wherever people come together confessing he is king, he is Lord, that is the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus says your kingdom come, he's referring to that. The kingdom advancing from heart to heart as people turn from sin and darkness to Christ and confess him as Lord. That's why we come together. That's what starts. God, you are holy. You are good. You are our Father. May your kingdom come. May it advance. That's how prayer begins. Second observation. And I'll tell you, let me back up. I tell you what, nothing lights up a prayer meeting like when people who have who have that vision of God, the glory of God is resonating in their hearts, come together to pray. Nothing lights up a prayer meeting like that when that's the case. But second, second observation. Prayer should take sin and forgiveness very seriously. It's interesting, in, in the model he gives for church prayer, he says, Lord, forgive us our sins. He has confession of sin. This is one of the reasons we do confession every Sunday morning. This is the model we're looking at that Jesus has given to us. But why, why is sin and forgiveness so important? Well, there's a logical progression that he begins with God. God is holy and good and beautiful and majestic. And then he moves into confession and repentance. And the fact of the matter is that when we encounter the true God in the light of who he is, all of a sudden sin becomes a lot more serious. Something that really bothers us. In my reading... Every true revival in the history of the church has always included mass and widespread confession and repentance of sin. And it's not because, like, people who lived 200 years ago, people who lived 1,000 years ago, were just so much more sinful and we've got our stuff together. It's because they are encountering the living God. And as they encounter his holiness and his goodness and his beauty, they're then looking at themselves and saying, oh, I fall so far short and that bothers me now. So confession and repentance comes naturally after we encounter the God who is our Father and who is holy. Now, we can get this wrong sometimes. and In some churches, they focus so much on confession and repentance, it's like they lead with that. 
But the progression is always, no, we don't, we don't lead with focusing on sin. We lead with God. And as we encounter him, then naturally the, in, the, the movement is towards confession and repentance. Third observation is that this prayer is so simple. It's like, what, ten words? This is the Lord of the universe. Jesus could pray passionate prayers of conviction that were powerful, and yet a child could understand what he was saying. I think this is really encouraging for some of us who are very nervous about praying out loud because we think, well, I, don't, I haven't been to Bible college or I, I, don't, I don't know the Bible well enough and I'm afraid I say something wrong. Or Jesus prayed incredibly simple prayers. He's our, he's our model. I think the most important thing when we come together to pray is not that we try to sound like how we think we ought to sound, but that we're praying from the heart. And more often than not, it's not going to involve us regurgitating a systematic theology, Right? They're going to be simpler prayers. And I will say this as well. Again, the most important part is that we speak out of our own voice from our own hearts when we pray. And when we come together, because each of us are different, each of us is bringing a different voice. Some of us are going to pray long. Some of us are going to pray short. Some of us are going to use big words. Some of us are going to use small words. And when you don't pray out loud, you rob the church of the diversity of prayer voices. So again, Jesus gives us an example, and it is a simple prayer. But last, fourth observation, is that practical needs are included, but they are not the emphasis. And he mentions, give us each day our daily bread. That's kind of a catch-all word for all that we need to live. The basic needs of life, food, shelter, relationships. They're included, but it's not the emphasis. The emphasis is God God's holiness, his glory, his kingdom come, sin, forgiveness, sanctification, and yeah, physical needs are there. We can make two errors with this. We can kind of over-spiritualize. We think, no, no, all that matters is like my eternal soul, my body doesn't matter, God doesn't care that my body hurts or that I don't have enough money or whatever. We can make that error. No, it's included. This is something we should pray. We make the other error, though, where our prayer meetings just turn into prayer requests for physical needs. And nothing will kill a prayer meeting than a prayer meeting that's just a church coming together to pray for their own physical well-being rather than a church that is just filled with the vision of God and an urgency of seeing his kingdom advance. So keeping in mind these four observations, again, that prayer begins with God and his kingdom, that it takes sin, forgiveness seriously, that it's simple, that it includes physical concerns, but it's not about. Those are not the focus. Keeping those in mind, when we restart our prayer meetings, is this what we are expecting from our prayer meetings? Are we expecting them to be about God, to actually encounter God as our Father, as our Holy Father, to have our hearts set ablaze because we're encountering the presence of God, to confess sin, not in some rote automatic way, but because our sin is weighing on us because we're encountering the living God. And of course, to pray for our physical concerns to the God who provides. Is that what we're expecting? We can expect that because that's what Jesus wants. He wants to meet us in that kind of a way when we come together to pray. So what is the content of prayer? He gives us a model. Pray then like this. 
But what should be the attitude of our prayer? How should, what should be the kind of ethos, the, the emotion, the expectation? So we get to our second point, the attitude of prayer. And Jesus moves into two different illustrations to kind of demonstrate what should the attitude be of our prayer. First illustration is verses 5 to 8. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise, or impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So Jesus says, imagine a friend of yours shows up at midnight. Surprise! I need to stay with you. And you have nothing to give them. And we don't feel the weight of this. In fact, if that happened to us, I'd be annoyed. I'd be like, come on, man. Don't you have a phone? Like, give me a call. I wouldn't feel bad that I don't have food. Like, you're showing up my doorstep at midnight. In this culture, hospitality was not, like, a good thing. It was, like, a civic demand. And if you did not offer hospitality, you were shaming yourself and your family. And so all of a sudden, you know, someone shows up at midnight. That's not their problem. That's your problem. And if you can't provide food, like you are shaming yourself and your family. That's the quandary. Here's the other quandary. Again, this is before the days of refrigeration and preserved foods. And so you would make enough food for the day, and that's it. So someone shows at midnight, you've eaten the food for the day. And you don't have grocery stores you can run out to, so that's, that's your quandary. What do you do? Well, you don't want to shame your family. So you start going to your neighbors and banging on the door and pleading with someone, someone's got to have some leftovers so I can put something before my guest and fulfill my hospitable duty. And here's the point. He's saying, look, what kind of friend, when their friend comes to them in that kind of need, is going to be like, I'm sorry, I'm already in bed. You're just going to have to face public humiliation and shame. Right? In our you know, day and age, put it this way. What kind of friend who has a friend calling up midnight and says, I, I fell down. I-, I-, I need to go to the hospital. Will you please come drive me? It's going to be like, do you know what time it is? Call me in six hours. I need to sleep. No. No friend's going to do that. Gonna, oh, of course. I'll meet you. And here's what Jesus says. He says, look, even a bad friend who did say, no, I'm sorry. It's too late. I can't help you. Even a bad friend would help simply out of the gumption and gall that you have to bang on their door at midnight. They might not get up because they're a good friend, but the fact that you have, like, the chutzpah to stand outside their door at midnight, banging on it, saying, I'm not going away until you answer, even a bad friend's going to answer. That's the illustration that Jesus gives us. And the argument within this illustration is, look, if this is the case for even a bad friend, will answer a request, how much more so for a good and kind and loving Father in heaven? If even a bad friend would give what we need, how much more so will a God who loves us, who is the definition of good, of faithfulness? And so if that is the case, get to verses 9 and 10. And so I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks will be opened. Jesus gives them commands followed by promises. Ask, and you will receive. Seek, and you will find. It's a promise. Knock, and it will be opened for you. Sometimes we talk about the promises of God in Scripture. This is one of those. It's not qualified and like, no, ask and you will receive. So this is where we get the attitude of Christian prayer. What should be the attitude of Christian prayer? Shameless persistence and expectation. Shameless persistence and expectation. Because we serve a God who has made promises to us that he wants us to kind of hold him to account for, if I can say it like that. And, a pract- and this brings us to a practical truth, which is this. That our prayer life, both as a church and as individuals, our prayer life rises or falls depending on whether we believe Jesus' promise or not. If I believe that Jesus can be taken to his word, that if I ask, I'll receive, if I seek, I'll find, if I knock, I'll be opened, then I will keep praying. Think of it like this. We've all had this experience where we go to a grocery store and we're looking for something a little bit off the beaten path. I'm not totally sure they even have it. So I look in the places I think it might be and I'm not seeing it. Like, how long do I keep looking? After a while, it's like, well, they probably don't have it. I give up. If I'm a man and I'm secure in my masculinity, I will go ask for help from an employee. And I'll ask him, please, do you have this in stock? And if he tells me, yes, it's in stock, it's in aisle nine. Well, how long will I look in aisle nine? I will look until I find it, because now I know it's there. I'm going to comb that entire aisle until I find the item, because I know it's there. It's the same thing with these promises. If we know Jesus has said he'll answer, we'll find, he'll open the door. We're going to keep knocking and asking and seeking until he does. And so our prayer life, it rises or falls, depending on whether we believe this promise. If we believe it, we're going to pray with this shameless perseverance and expectation. Now, I want to make a clarification that Jesus is not offering a blank check, right? So this is within the context of what he's already given us as the model of prayer. Got to hold that in context. So he's shown us, like, if you pray this, ask and you will receive. And notice it does not say, Father, give us this day our Caribbean vacation, right? Or give us this day a spouse. Or give us this day a job promotion. Let's give us there our daily bread. What we need to live. But there are still two objections I want to kind of address because I think, you know, anyone who spends any time thinking about this is going to add these questions. But, okay, well, looking at these promises, objection number one, well, so what about Christians who do starve? They're have been Christians in the history of the church who have starved to death or died because of lack of basic necessities. It's Jesus' promise broken to them. How do we make sense of that? Is this a promise that you will never, ever starve, ever, ever? Well, the first thing we've got to come back to again is that the primary content of the prayer of the church is not about physical needs. That's not the point of the prayer. It's included, but it's not primary. Primary is God's kingdom and God, and his holiness, and sin, and forgiveness, and sanctification. So provision of of, of physical needs is is always secondary in this prayer. That's just something to keep in mind. But second, 
Yes, there have been Christians who have starved to death, but they've always been the exception. And as they say, the exception proves the rule. The vast majority of Christians throughout the history of the church have not starved to death. If that were not the case, there probably wouldn't be a church. And so yes, there are exceptions to this, but every single person in this room has had their daily needs provided for up until this day or you would not be here, including those who are watching online. And so if God who has provided our daily needs for us up until this day, March 14th, 2021, I think there's a good chance he's going to keep doing that tomorrow and the next day. But objection number two, what about just all those unanswered prayers? Not just prayers for Caribbean vacations, but like prayers for the healing of someone we love who's really sick or pray, prayer from deliverance from just a very difficult situation or for protection. And what about all the prayers we offer to God that he just doesn't answer? That can be devastatingly hard because it brings to the forefront is God trustworthy? And the fact of the matter that sometimes the fact of the, ma- fact of the matter is that sometimes we ask and sometimes God's answer is no. He answers us. It's just, it's just not yes, it's no. But here's what we have to remember. When God says no, he still is saying no as a father. He remains our compassionate, loving father, and that makes a huge difference. So imagine Caleb, my four-year-old, falls down and breaks his arm really badly. Go to the doctor's office, and the doctor says, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to reset his bone. So I'm, so <laughs> Caleb looks at me, Daddy, don't let that man touch my arm. I can't answer that. I can't say yes to that. Because if his arm's not reset, it's going to, you know, heal like that, and he'll never use his arm again. And the excruciating pain of this moment is not worth a lifetime of having a disability. But here's a question. So when, you know, how am I going to say no, right? I'm in, the, I'm in the doctor's room, and I'm standing in the corner of my phone. Daddy, Daddy, don't let him touch my arm. No. Is that? No, absolutely not. I'd be holding Caleb on my lap. I'd be wrapping my arms around him. I'd be crying as he cries and trying not to faint as they set the bone. I am still his daddy even as I say no. And that's the same way when God says no, he remains our father. He stands next to us by the graveside and weeps our tears. He feels our bitterness of disappointment. He says no sometimes, but he says no as a father. That makes all the difference. But finally, again, to answer a second objection, what about all those unanswered prayers? Is, is this proving that Jesus is not keeping his promises? Well, we have to ask in the day, what is Jesus promising when he says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened? What is he promising? Most fundamentally, what is he promising? And this gets to most fundamentally, what is the point of prayer? We've looked at the content of prayer. We've looked at the attitude of prayer. Now we're going to get to what is the ultimate goal of prayer? Look at verses 11 to 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? 
Again, we get the second illustration, very similar to the first. Again, the idea is even, you know, we don't give dad of the year awards to dads who just simply don't, like, abuse their kids. That's just what a normal dad does. And if a normal dad, when his son asks for a fish, will give him a fish, like, how much more so is that true for our Heavenly Father, who is far more than just a normal dad, but is a perfect father? But again, what is the main goal of prayer? Look at verse 13 again. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so the Heavenly Father, what will we give? The Holy Spirit to those who ask. Who is a ho- what is that saying? Who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is God's manifest presence in this world. It is God known and felt and experienced this side of eternity. What is the goal of prayer? What is the ultimate goal of prayer? It is more of God. That's what it is. It's more of God. What does God want us to ask for, to seek, to knock until the door is opened? It is for himself. And he promises to give us that without qualification. No qualification. No small print. You don't need an attorney to look at this contract. God promises. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for God himself. So you have to ask ourselves, what flavors our prayers? When we pray at home, when we pray together as a church, like, what is flavor? What do we want most? Are we coming to prayer because we want good things from God? Or are we coming to prayer because more than the good things from God, we want God himself? Prayer that brings heaven to earth is prayer that simply longs for God's presence above all else. And so Christian prayer is a prayer that is always characterized by a, a, a kind of discontent for anything other than God. I can have all the good things in the world. If I don't have God, I'm sorry, I'm just not content. On the flip side, I can lose everything. And it will be hard. But if I have God, I'm content. Church, we don't have to feel that to pray that. You may think, that's nice sounding words, but I don't really feel that. We don't have to feel that to begin to pray like that. All we have to do is pray something like this. God, you are holy. You are better than anything else. I want to experience your presence more than anything else in this life. Please give me your Holy Spirit. Amen. And here's the amazing thing. When we pray that simple prayer, Jesus says, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this incredible teaching on prayer and the promise that you have given to us. And if we ask for you, if we seek for you, if we knock for you, the God of life, that you will give us more of yourself, you will give us your spirit. Oh, may we have faith to believe your promises, to live them out, to seek your face with shameless and persistent expectation. For you have promised to answer. May we do that individually. 
in our homes. May we do that as a church when we gather together. Pray this in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.